to How I Did It, where coders philanthropy and social capital team find out how successful leaders do what they do in the world of philanthropy and social leadership. My guest in this episode is Stephen Fitzgerald, co-founder and chairman of Affirmative Investment Management. Stephen's had a 27-year career in funds management. He's a former chair of Goldman Sachs Australia and New Zealand. He currently serves on the board of the Great Barrier Reef Foundation, QBE Insurance and Pinebridge Investments. He's a member of the New South Wales Government Expert Advisory Panel on Social Impact Bonds and he also served a five-year term as a Guardian of the Future Fund, Australia's Sovereign Wealth Fund. In this episode, as well as talking about his own success, Stephen talks about investing successfully, common investor mistakes he's seen and how to run an effective investment committee. He also explains his commitment to impact investing and his belief that all capital will eventually be invested with impact in mind. I hope you enjoy listening to what Stephen has to say. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us today. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Terrific. Welcome back to Australia. Thank um, you. I wanted to start the conversation by looking back at uh, the very start of your career and asking you how you actually got into the investment business in the first place. What was it that appealed to you? It, it actually, I fell into the investment business. I started I'm from country New South Wales, did a degree in economics, um, but worked for a great company. I worked for the NRMA right from the time that I finished school. But when I finished my degree, the NRMA moved me around different departments, one of which was investments, found something I liked, uh, was fun, had a great mentor while I was mm. there, and it, um, I fell into this. A lot, I think a lot of people fall into careers, don't they? Um, my son's just going through that, that period at school where you've got to choose your electives and so on, and a lot of the kids worry about um, you know, what they want to do in life, but really not many people actually are looking to know what they want to do in life and fall into it in, a, in the way you just described, aren't they? Absolutely, and, and one of the things I think, uh, whilst I did do economics at, at university, um, one of the things that I found in hiring people is almost to be agnostic on their degree. We've had some great fund managers that have got eclectic degrees, a degree in fine art, or something like that. Mm. You're really hiring people and people that are open-minded about learning and challenging themselves. Yeah, how did, so then how did you develop, um, you've obviously gone on and had a fantastic career, um, but how did you acquire the skills and the necessary um, habits and experiences that you need to be successful in this field? What I was think it? We, start, we start with, a, with a, a good education, although my education was state school, University of New England, it wasn't Ivy League, mm. um, but a good education and a willingness to learn and read and be interested. Uh, I think being interested in what's going on in the world. And so when I finished at the NRMA, I went traveling, um, found myself in London, um, and in the 18 months experience I had with NRMA in the investment group uh, allowed me to move into a company, Foreign and Colonial, which was the oldest investment manager in the world. I think I was the first portfolio manager they hired that hadn't been to Oxford or Cambridge. Mm. I think they thought University of New England was somewhere near Boston. Uh, and they hired me as a fund manager. If it works, it works. It you worked. Gotta, and they, it. they gave me great opportunity. Uh, again, I had a great mentor there. And I think one of the things that I would advise people joining this industry, or almost any, is get yourself a mentor. Get yourself people that will support your career that you can learn from and listen to them. Yeah. Now, obviously, you, um, you had that uh, more than once, by the sound of it. And you obviously... Well, I'm guessing you, you, they could see your talent 
um, to be giving you these opportunities as well. But what other habits did you develop that enabled you to um, get as far as you did in your career? One of the early ones was was actually just working a bit harder. Yeah. Um, so I, when I was at the NRMA, I was on the branches. I was doing insurance in my first roles, and mm. I just got in before everyone else. I was ready <laughs> to go when the the doors opened each morning. Same thing at Foreign and Colonial. It was. You know, it was the late 80s in London. People didn't start till nine. Well, I started at seven. You know, I had two hours on everyone, yeah. you know, at the beginning of the day to read, to do research and things. So it was a little bit of just hard work. Yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because um, the, whole, the whole field of professional development and success is, is really complex. And um, that, that simple truth of hard work <laughs> never goes away, does it? Just working a little bit harder than, than the next next person but also I think working with people one of the things that I've loved about this industry is the people you meet the relationships you make and they're interesting people and so one of the other bits of advice I do give to people is maintain relationships mm. you know there are really fascinating people that I maybe worked with at the People's Bank of China when mm. we were managing money there and I haven't managed money for them for oh, 10 plus years uh, maybe more but I still maintain relationships with some of the people there because mm. I learn from them. Every time I meet them, I learn from them. Every mm. time I interact with them, I learn from them. That's not an easy skill for a lot of people, though, is it? And it's really easy once you've moved on to, to literally move on and then you kind of go, go into a different orbit. So how, how, how do you maintain those relationships over a long period of time? It's, called, it's just discipline. It's, you know, I've got a list of people um, that I contact and my assistant, if I haven't contacted them, she gives, she gives me a reminder. Yeah. Uh, and I just... If I'm in Beijing, I just let them know I'm there. Yeah. Uh, if I'm in New York, I let them know I'm there. And it's just discipline. But again, every time I see them, I learn. Yeah, and so simple, but is this, and really a system important there? to see people when you're not asking them for something. Mm. You're seeing them because you're interested in them, not because you need something from them. Yeah, that's a tr true relationship, isn't it? Uh, funny that also um, is something we talk to our nonprofit clients, particularly the fundraisers, a lot uh, um, about a lot. Insofar as this, uh, people who are being asked to donate don't just want to be asked to donate and then be asked again. The relationship building comes from sharing what has happened with the money uh, and just involving them in what you're doing, rather than just simply going back and asking for more money every time you see them. So it's. I completely agree, I, and I have a foundation, I have a foundation here in Australia, I have one in the UK, and the not-for-profits, the charities that, that we support, it's a real mixed bag in terms of how they maintain the relationship. Uh, whether it's just something as simple as reminding me that it's 12 months since I gave and mm. it's time to give again, it would be surprised how many you have to chase yourself. Mm. Um, and for feedback and information, on the projects that you've been supporting and funding. Um, it shouldn't be hard, but again, it's just discipline and good good relationship management. Again, discipline and hard work, they're not, they're not complicated it's things not to complicated. get your head around, but it's um, something a lot of people don't follow through on, so yeah. that's, that's a good lesson. And I think communicating well. I think I've always, I spent 20 years at Goldman Sachs, uh, and I think it's a terrific firm. It doesn't have the smartest people in the world. It's got good people. But the thing that differentiates it is the communication, the level of mm. communication um, around things that are going well as well as things that are going badly. Um, that, uh, to me, is what really makes it a successful organisation, and that comes back to culture. There was an old um, 
CEO, who well, wasn't old, but a place I worked um, previously, there was a CEO, and, and one of his mantras was, um, the definition of good news is bad news delivered early. Would oh, you agree? I completely agree. <laughs> Based on we, what you just said. Yeah, again, if there was, as part of the culture of the firm, if something was going wrong, you told lots of people. You, told, you tell more people when something's going wrong than, than something's going right. Yeah. Um, you, know, you share bad news. Which is interesting because um, another thing you hear in our industry um, is that success has many fathers and failures and orphans. So if something's going wrong, people don't like to talk about it. So Absolutely critical in our business. Mm. Um, it goes to the reputation of the firm, managing, you know, people make mistakes. Mm. Um, but errors picked up early and rectified uh, are small errors. Yeah. Errors that aren't picked up early and aren't rectified are the big errors. Right. So, so um, that takes me to a question I had for you, talking about errors. Um, with your experience, you're in a position to, to share some insight here. What would, you, what would you put among the biggest mistakes that portfolio investors make? Because um, I think I'd like to hear about the mistakes as much as the, the traits for success, because I think if you eliminate the mistakes, you can, often, um, you can often do a lot to improve your position without doing anything spectacular. So biggest mistakes that you think portfolios make, what, what, what comes to mind? Oh, look, there, I think there are two things. One, lack of clarity on mandate. Um, it's very mm. important to know what your mandate is, mm. um, what your benchmark is, what you're trying to achieve, and be, be very clear and make sure everyone's aligned around that. So I think that, that's really, really important. Once you've got that, it's, a, it's an old cliche, but long-term investing. You know, biggest mistake people make is, is being too short-term in the, their approach to things. Yeah. So clarity of mandate shared across the investment committee, so everyone is clear on the mandate, and then being able to take a long-term view on what you do. And that consensus that you talk about um, is, is really, uh, in my experience, and, and observing it with, with, um, with particularly non-profit committees and non-profit boards that are charged with managing investment portfolios, is that it's, it's very difficult to get that consensus when you are working with a group of people who have different views uh, about what um, perhaps a non-profit organisation or a charity should be doing with its money and how much risk it should take and what, it, what it's um, trying to achieve. So how do, you, how do you in practice build consensus around uh, the committee or the board table? Uh, I think that's all about investing the time up front. I think you know, one mm. of the things that we might talk about is the future fund, but it's got a very clear mandate and it was enshrined at the beginning. And I think that's really important. The other thing with an investment committee is to recognise what you don't do. And too often I've seen investment committees that want to be a fund manager. Um, and I think it's important that you, you can't manage money by a committee uh, and you can't manage money part-time. It's a full-time job. And so you need to be clear on what you're not going to do as much as what you're going to do. Yeah, interesting. Um, I know we just had a quick chat with Paul Heath, um, who's our CEO, who, who you obviously know, know well. Very well. Um, and that's one of the things um, that he talks about. He, in fact, a couple of things you said um, resonate there when we, when we talk to our non-profit clients. Talks about needing to decide what kind of committee you're going to be uh, and not be. And secondly, this idea that markets are dynamic and committees tend to be very static. So you just can't, you just can't manage it um, from, a, from a committee that meets once a quarter. It's not, not a, And not I a think that meet approach, meets once a quarter. Again, it's a full-time job managing money and staying on top of these things. You can't come in once a quarter mm. and think you've got insight. You, but what you have is you've, again, you clear mandate, clear strategic asset allocation, 
and a long-term view. If you do those things as a committee, as well as oversight of the investments and the managers, I think that's a, a recipe for success. Now, so one thing um, that I have to ask you is that is all well and good. We talk about those similar type of themes qu quite a lot, but under pressure, the short-termism creeps back in. Under pressure, risk concerns creep back in and it's very easy I find for people and particularly in the committee environment to jump away from the mandate that's been set that everyone's agreed in agreed on and, and actually think we should be doing something else how, how important is it to hold true to that mandate even when um, the pressure is on uh, it's critical and I think that's about time invested up front in that clarity of mandate and building the consensus around what that means and reinforce it continually reinforce the mandate, mm. the benchmark, the asset allocation, um, because there will be pressure when things aren't working out um, in, in the short term or even the medium term. But the biggest mistakes people make are, are, are panicking when things yeah. aren't going well and reversing um, an agreed mandate or asset allocation uh, it's almost always the wrong time to do it. So you, as you say, um, continually reinforce what you've w worked hard on at the start to set in place, presumably then communication becomes very, very important in how you do that reinforcement. That's where that clear clear and frank communication has to come in, right? Yeah, repeating the message, repeating you know, what you do at the beginning of every uh, investment committee. Uh, this, you know, so there is absolute clarity. And it gives people the opportunity, if they disagree, to disagree before an event. So, yeah. you know, if we're all agreed on something, we've all got the same information set and we've agreed on something, it doesn't help to have someone just have a different view after an event. <laughs> so, you know, again, make sure there's a good level of communication amongst the people on the committee. And also, you're communicating that out to other stakeholders as well. Mm. You will still come under pressure if things aren't working out. But the more you've communicated, uh, the better you are. You know, NZ Super, I think, is one organization that really does this work. Everything they do is up on the web. And I think implicitly what they're saying is, if anyone in New Zealand, because it is you know, the sovereign fund, if anyone's got a view that's different, let us know up front. But you've got the same information set as we do. Um, so communicating with stakeholders is really important as well. Yeah. So they've got the confidence um, through the difficult times. Confidence is the key word, I think, there, isn't it? That it creates that confidence um, and allows people to see why you've taken a particular course of action when, when something yeah. plays out. Um, the mandate in all of that was crucial. And uh, you mentioned the future fund. Um, presumably, the, the fact that it has that clear mandate is a big part of the success that it's gone on to have. Anything else you, you would share that um, sits behind the, the approach to investing that makes it helps to make it successful? Yeah, I spent five years as um, uh, on the board of guardians of the Future Fund. I'm no longer on that. It was a terrific experience and it's, it's a great organization. But it does have some advantages. It has a very clear mandate, you know, to produce CPI plus four to five percent. Mm -hmm. Not an easy mandate to achieve, yep. but it's very clear and, you know, um, it's got a good governance structure, so it does have that independent board of guardians. It's got a great team. It's got a good team of people in the Future Fund agency, but it's also got a good culture. It's one team, one mandate. 
Um, so there's no, there's no, there aren't fiefdoms. It's all about delivering that return to um, essentially to the board of guardians in the end. And you mentioned um, before before we started the, um, the podcast that um, uh, being able to be clear about what you can invest for the long term and what and what you need in the short term, operating expenses and so on, um, is crucial a crucial part of um, determining how you invest and yeah. setting a mandate. So it's got so it's got a good governance structure. But the other thing that the future fund has, which I think are both important factors in the success that they have had. So one is that long-term view, and truly, truly a long-term view. People talk mm. about long-term views, and then in a moment of crisis, they become very short-term. Yeah. Uh, the Future Fund truly has a long-term view and, and reflects that. It allows them to take advantage of illiquidity premium. It allows them to have significant allocations to alternative assets, which have been a big driver of the returns of the Future Fund. You know, the other advantage it has, which is almost unique, is it has no cash needs um, up until I think it's 2025. And so there's no cash drag. You're not maintaining cash for anything but uh, an investment yep. decision. And that actually is a real advantage. Um, that cash drag, which impacts portfolios that do have liquidity needs, uh, does day in, day out suck return out of the portfolio. Yeah, terrific. Um, okay, now so you you have um, um, you've co-founded and you're chair of Affirmative Investment Management. Can you tell us about um, what you're doing there? Yeah. So Affirmative. One of the things that I've become more and more interested in um, is the intersection of finance and purpose. My background, as we've talked about, is very mainstream. It's you know NRMA, it's foreign and colonial, it's Goldman Sachs, it's it's a mainstream investment background, always on the investing side. I also serve on the board of the Great Barrier Reef Foundation and a number of other not-for-profits. And that intersection of finance and purpose uh, has been something that I've wanted to develop over the last few years. Because if we're going to address some of the problems, some of the challenges the world faces, either micro or very major problems, being able to mobilize capital to those problems I think is critical. And mobilizing mainstream capital as well as philanthropy. I think philanthropy is terrific, um, but mobilizing mainstream capital is also really important. Mm. But you can only mobilize mainstream capital by delivering mainstream returns. And that's what we're all about at Affirmative Investment Management. We are a fixed income manager. We're managing global or uh, single country fixed income portfolios absolutely for return. So we focus on risk-adjusted returns, but we constrain the universe of permitted investments to those which we deem to have a positive environmental or social impact. Yep. So green bonds and social bonds. Yep. Uh, so it's all about return, but also having a positive impact. So I, I, I get that, but some people might, um, on the, in the mainstream investment um, uh, sphere, struggle to understand that. And they might struggle to, to understand why someone who's had your career has moved into this field. Um, I think there are a lot of people, just to go on and explain that a little bit, a lot of mainstream investors think impact investment, positive, uh, you can't have your cake and eat it, sounds like ethical, 
um, this is not for me, this is for people who you know, are a bit softer than me and aren't interested in, in uh, risk-adjusted returns. How, how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, we let me tell you, we are all about risk-adjusted returns. So when we manage our portfolios, we don't manage against green bond carve-outs. We manage against the broad fixed income universe. When we compare our performance um, to our competitors, we're comparing our performance to PIMCO and GSAM and BlackRock. We're not comparing it to um, uh, niche managers. So we are all about return. The nice thing as well in the fixed income space is you can demonstrate you're not compromising returns in two ways. One, you can look backwards and look at the track records that we and people like us have been able to produce and they are you know, mainstream, so we mm. add financial alpha above a mainstream benchmark and have, been, have demonstrated an ability to do that. But also in fixed income, you've got a yield to maturity on the, the underlying instruments. And when we do the analysis, the yield to maturity for, for example, a green bond is the same as the yield to maturity for a conventional bond of an equivalent issuer. Right. So you can actually look forward in fixed income and demonstrate that you're also not compromising return. So just to, just to wrap up that, that section of the conversation, put simply, how do you think mainstream investors um, should think about impact investment? How do you encourage them to think about it? So I think mainstream investors, it depends where you are in the world today. I think all investors will begin to think about the impacts the portfolios that they have are having. That could be as simple as quantifying the impact or understanding the negative impact, the carbon footprint mm. of your portfolio. Or it could be introducing um, more of a, uh, a waiting towards looking for a positive impact. So there's, there's a spectrum of what people will do. Yeah. It will start, I think, with people starting to quantify the impacts they're having and then begin to think about how they can reduce the bad things in their portfolio, the negative impacts, and over time look to actually for investments that have a positive net externality, that have positive social or environmental impact. I also think the whole concept of fiduciary responsibility will change. In fact, it is changing. Mm. It's changed in the UK. Um, so fiduciary responsibility is no longer just thinking about risk-adjusted returns. It's about risk-adjusted returns and impact. Interesting you say that. I'm a big believer in that um, theory you just espoused. I did my tr professional trustee qualifications in the UK. And um, when I, I came here, I thought there's a, there's a very, uh, there's quite a narrow um, uh, uh, line of thinking on what a fiduciary role is. And it's it seemed to be purely in a financial sense. Think of it in the super context. Um, I think about the, the responsibility you have and the fiduciary duty you have to your beneficiaries in a holistic sense. Uh, it's quite difficult to apply that with the sole purpose test in superannuation, but it is becoming more and more obvious, as you say, that to be a fiduciary, you cannot have a start point that just says it's only about financial returns. I, I think that's the case in, in the pension world. I think that that's the case broadly in the investment world, but it's also the case for companies now as well. It's not just about the financial returns mm. a company produces. It's the financial returns, absolutely important, but it's also their place in the society, their place in the economy, the 
impact they're having on the world is becoming increasingly important for not just shareholders but stakeholders more broadly. How, how do you think, talking about um, uh, the broader considerations and the impact that we will have, whether we like it or not, when we make an investment, um, how do you think in a, in a broader portfolio context, Stephen, investors should think about something like impact investment? In other words, um, not looking at it in isolation as an investment you may make as a one-off investment. How do you think about introducing that into your portfolio and what kind of place do you think it can have in a, in a portfolio? Again, it's a very interesting question because it, this is a growth area. This is an area that's starting from, you know, really has only started since 2010, where the team that we hired launched the world's first green bond fund while at Nikko Asset Management. And I think different uh, countries and different types of investors are thinking about it differently. In Australia, investors seem to be thinking about how do they embed this in an integrated way in their entire portfolio. Mm. And that's a big piece of work. Mm. Where in other countries where people, we're seeing investors, some of the biggest pools of capital in the world, just make some early steps to learn while doing it. Uh, in the US, we've got a, a, a couple of clients, more in the trust and foundation space, that are moving 100% of their portfolio mm. to impact. Now that's a journey. Mm. They're not going, on you know T plus one yeah. to impact, but over the next five years or ten years, they've made public statements about moving to a hundred percent impact in their portfolio. You know, I don't think that's for everyone, but I think that all large pools of capital and small pools of capital will have impact as part of their portfolio. Yeah, I agree. We're, all, uh, we're everyone is moving in that direction, isn't it, to a, a greater awareness of the impact that you have. Uh, positively or negatively through your investment but also now thanks to things like impact investment the realization um, is growing that you can have your cake and eat it you can generate um, uh, market at market returns or superior returns but you can also choose to do something that's going to have a positive impact on the environment or other people yeah. as the chief investment officer of one of the largest funds in the world said to me why wouldn't we do this? If you can deliver mainstream returns and a positive impact, why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. Um, their biggest challenge is given their size, how do they do it in a very meaningful way for their overall portfolio? Sure. So they're just starting with relatively small allocations for their size. But again, if you can deliver mainstream returns and positive impact, there's no reason why people won't have some allocation to this. And we haven't spoken about it, but. Um uh, increased diversification, lower correlation. There are other arguments for this type of investment to be introduced into the mix, right? Absolutely, but uh, in our space though, the correlation is quite high because we're talking investment grade right. fixed income. I think when you start talking about social impact bonds, mm. uh, such as have been um, launched in New South Wales, and yep. I've, I've sat on the um, expert advisory group for that since the beginning, there you've got a almost new asset class. I prefer to call them payment for outcome securities mm -hmm. rather than bonds because to me a bond pays a fixed coupon and matures at par. These are, are really payment for outcomes. I think they've got a really important place in a portfolio for exactly the reasons that you're talking about. If, you're, if you have a bond where the, the coupon or the final redemption is linked to the performance of a program, whether it's be um, recidivism or at um, restoration of children to homes, there is almost 
nothing that that is correlated to in the financial world. Mm. And so I think they do have an important place in a portfolio as a diversifier and as a return. I think the biggest challenge with social impact bonds is how do we scale them up? You know, and the challenge in scaling up is not the lack of availability of capital in Australia. There's plenty of capital and these have attractive risk and return characteristics and those diversification benefits. The challenge with scaling up is the underlying organization that's delivering the service, their ability to scale yeah. up. Yeah. And I think the challenge in New South Wales is, how do we go from $10 million issues, what's the path to the first $100 million issue, what's the path to the first billion dollar issue? And I think that's going to be a, a really large focus for New South Wales government. Yeah, and uh, a, lot, a lot of people in the field are asking that question. It's a lot easier to ask the question than answer at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. We're, like you said before, to use your word, we're on a journey. There's a journey and it. it's going to yeah. take time to get um, to full maturity for the market. It's really a nascent market, isn't it? It is a nascent market, but it, it's important. And come back to where I started, if we are truly going to address issues that society broadly faces, philanthropy is a really important part of that, but it can't do it all. We need to be able to mobilize mainstream capital, but you can only mobilize mainstream capital by offering mainstream risk-adjusted returns. Mm. Uh, and that's where I think the industry goes. Mm, terrific. And um, as we come to the end, a couple of questions about how, how you've um, set up Affirmative, because a couple of things interest me there. Um, first of all, you, you talk about impact investing with integrity. What does that mean at Affirmative? I think it's being true to what you do. Uh, and it goes to the culture of the firm. And we talked earlier, it's a lot easier when you start a firm to establish the culture that you want to have. And you know, one of the things that's really important to us at, at Affirmative is diversity of thought. And diversity of thought manifests itself in many ways. Uh, it's ethnicity, it's background, it's gender. And one of the things we're most proud of is we are completely gender balanced at all levels of the firm, from the management committee down. Um, but it's also being true to what we do and making sure that we never compromise the quality of what we do for a short-term P&L benefit. Yeah. And you know, we talk about long-term, we're building something for the long-term. We're an old-fashioned partnership. Everyone in the firm owns equity in the business mm. uh, and that aligns interest and I think aligns interest with our clients. Really interesting because you, my next question, you've almost answered it, but I just want to delve into it a little bit more detail in terms of how, probably how you've done it, is you, you talked about um, true diversity across different uh, metrics. Uh, I'm interested in how you've done that because I did see that wh when I looked um, at the firm, you can see the number of female partners, you can see diversity in, in a number of different ways. So the question is, how have you done that? And it's a twofold question. The second part is, how does that translate to better outcomes for you and your clients? So how we've done that, uh, to me, having a diverse working environment is it always goes back to culture. Um, and we, as you establish a firm, as I said, you get to choose what your culture is. Much easier when you start from scratch. And we said that this was important to us, and it's diversity of thought. And as I said, that will manifest itself in different ways, but diversity of thought. And we started with a gender balanced firm. Our first four to six hires were 50 50. Mm. And after that, it just seems to be self perpetuating. Mm. We don't think so much about it 
anymore. But when we look at how we're hiring and the people we're attracting, they're coming from diverse backgrounds, they're coming from a range of ethnicities, they're, uh, you know, we're, as I said, we're attracting great women into our organization and great men, it just happens to be 50-50. Mm. In fact, I think we're actually at the moment about 60% uh, women. Yeah, yeah I thought I, I noticed that it was the majority, which um, in the industry is, is exceptional, isn't it? Yeah, um, but we've got great, you know, what we're doing is new, it's a bit different, and I think for, you know, we've, we've got a bit of a barbell of older people with experience and, and younger people, but for a lot of the younger people, you know, finance with purpose, finance with integrity is so important to them. Mm. So when we have roles that are open, the quality and the number of CVs we're seeing is, is very humbling. Uh, and you know, we've been able to find great people that come from different backgrounds mm. um, and bring them into the firm. They also like the, the alignment of that long-term view and a partnership structure. Yeah, well, I get that here because uh, Coda, we operate in a very similar way. So um, if you then add into the mix the idea of inv investing and working with integrity and, and giving yourself real purpose in your career, you can see it's a very attractive proposition. And I'm sure we both agree we want to see a lot more of that in the future, and I think we probably will. I agree. I think we will. Yeah, terrific. Well, thank you very much for giving us your time and sharing your insights. I know you're very busy, so um, I'll, um, I'll thank you and um, wish you well for the rest of your, your stay in Australia. Thanks, Thanks a lot. David. It's, um, it's great to catch up again. Terrific. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for this episode of How I Did It. For more from Coda, visit codacapital.com or email philanthropy at codacapital.com.